I'll go get it. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Digging Deep. I'm Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. We are two landscape designers that have been in the field for well over 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> and we are two landscape designers that just both recently took vacations in way different parts of the globe. So uh, through this podcast, we want to share with you our experiences and um, our knowledge and our challenges and what else. And our foibles or problems <laughs> and stories, lots of stories. That's one of the things that we do the best. We have stories and anything that can help you and your family create these outdoor wonderful environments. So where did you go? Well, I went to Puerto Vallarta in um, Mexico, Jalisco, and um, it's. I just checked on the the temperature. Really, their coldest temperature is seventy two degrees, and the hottest is like in eighty nine degrees. And then we have um, about three or four months of rain, which is very different from where you went. Where did you go? I went to the United Kingdom. I went to Bath, England. And where the temperature was, it was in the 60s to, I, I think one day it actually got up to 70, but it was in the 60s. We were prepared for rain and we didn't get any rain except for one evening when we were sleeping. And it was cloudy, a little bit foggy, and then sunny and clear the rest of the time. Yeah, two different places. I love England and I love how lush it is. And with Puerto Vallarta um, along the coast there, it's almost very desert-like, um, and they, the rain that they get is those few months. So we'll talk about that because pretty much the rain we get now is just a few months out of the year, right? If we're lucky to, to say a few months, yes. I know. Absolutely. I know. It's, it's really crazy. Well, um, I'll tell you that when, and you could tell me, because I, I saw pictures that you posted of um, gardens there, and I in Puerto Vallarta went to the botanical garden there, which is very different from botanical gardens in other places I've been to because um, uh, their water is limited like ours. But my gosh, the succulents and they grow orchids, absolutely fabulous. And the, the difference is even though they have very little water, they have very high humidity, which thank God we don't have here. Yes. <laughs> So was it was it was the botanical gardens? I've never been there. Was it large? I mean, did they have different environments or different? You know, like um, uh, like one grouping here, one grouping. How was it laid out? Well, not well. It actually is. It covers twenty acres. But um, after uh, I didn't do twenty acres, I'm still recovering from my broken leg. I am walking now with a slight limp. But um, they did have um, the orchid house, which is this massive. Um, glass conservatory with uh, with orchids, but also succulents, huge amount of succulents in those. What are those plants called that look like big moose's ears and they grow on the side of trees? Do you know what those are? Oh, staghorn ferns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had those. Things that we don't normally grow. And they had um, a beautiful chapel that was just all all different colors of the rainbow with birds and um, plant life on the walls. It was, you know, more of a testament to um, nature and, you know, yeah. God, nature, that that bit. But they didn't have um, the rest of it. You could go down to the river, but basically what you're looking at is the 
permaculture, the indigenous um, plantings that, that grow there. And, and it's lush in its own way, but certainly not like um, if you go to a botanical garden, let's say even in Denver, Colorado or, or Seattle, um, they are very, very different because we have the ability of growing a whole large range of different plants and they do not not without pumping in a lot of water which right what we do so um but so we'll get back to that but um let's talk about some of the gardens that you saw oh my god it, it you know we started out when we were in london when we flew into london and we went to kensington gardens and we also went to hyde park and i know you've been there before but i mean just Law. I mean, the first thing that strikes you is, and of course, because they have water, it is so green, lush, 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 green, green for days. And just the one thing that struck me is the magnificent, magnificent trees. I mean, they have these European tilia trees, uh, tilia cordata, that have kind of a roundish leaf. And they were like, oh, 100 feet tall with about a 50-foot spread that has the most gorgeous canopies. They had European buckeyes. They had um, um, uh, ginkgo trees. Um, just the most amazing big trees. And part of their gardens were just, you know, you'd, you'd walk along in big, big patches of lawn with humongous, gorgeous, amazing trees. And then they would have um, these big sections. They almost looked like islands of perennial color where the, the 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 mixture of the perennials were just amazing from orange mixed with pink mixed with yellow mixed with blue and purple and you just stand there and go oh my god and you know and the thing that was so neat about it is they didn't just have one of this and one of this and one of that which a lot of people think for english gardens they do mass plantings they so like for example if they were going to do forget-me-nots which have a blue flower, there'd be a hundred forget-me-nots. Um, so everything was done in mass planting so that when they bloomed, you didn't just get a little touch of yellow or a little touch of orange. You got a swath like you were you went through with a paint can and just threw the paint all over everything. It was just, it was unbelievable. You know, the English know how to do that so well. Um, I, I once saw a picture you talked about forget-me-nots, which is myotosis or something like that. I forgot. Right, right. I don't say it that well. But anyway, there was a, a huge, long drift of powder. These are powder blue, teeny, teeny flowers, forget-me-nots. And they knew that they bloom in the spring. And so interplanted were hundreds of pink tulips that came up. So yes. imagine pink tulips, and then the whole base was powder blue. This is art. And this is what we try to do, Michael and I, it's what I certainly try to do, is to create art through the seasons by combining plants that will bloom around the same time. And when they're done, something else is going to pick up. And when something else is done, something else will pick up. And that's, uh, that's what's so brilliant about English gardens is they know their plants so well. And we call it almost like plant marriages. The thing that was striking striking to me was, again, you know, we're in California. And for example, a lot of our perennials, the spring perennials, are done or they finish blooming. But we were there um, early, you know, it was, it was the end of May, the middle of May. And um, like the peonies, 
they had maybe 50 peonies in a bed and they hadn't even opened yet, probably in another two weeks. And we went to a couple of rose, formal rose gardens that were, would have been, you know, they were beautiful, but the roses were just starting to open up. It yeah. was still early. And, you know, and again, we were in the middle of, of April and um, I'm, the end of April, the beginning of May. And it was like, wow, in California, everything is bloomed and, and ready for its second bloom. And here in England, they were just starting. Yeah. Yeah. We're um, we're heading into summer. Uh, we've had high temperatures and high winds, which means even drier conditions. And so my first uh, blooms of roses, they've they've come and they're done. In fact, I just yeah. cut them back so I could, you know, urge them to do that again. <laughs> to yep, get absolutely. Another bloom. Yeah. And um, my Echium, which is Pride of Madeira, that's done blooming. My Aloe are blooming now. And let me tell you something. You can have beautiful color with succulents as well. Don't think that because we're not in England, um, we can't have a lush looking garden. Succulents are just one of the things that bloom. Obviously, we live in a place where you can have so much color and perennials pretty much all through the summer, including roses. And I know Michael and I have talked about this before, but ground cover roses they just bloom kind of endlessly all year. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. And as I said, you know, it's, it's, I studied, you know, and, and I, I know the plantings in England, but I still always am surprised because I thought, oh, I'm going to see things that I really don't know what they are, but it, they're not. We use them in California, a lot of the same plants. It's just how they use them, where they put them together. And it's just, again, the, the way they group them that I, I think was, I was so surprised and big, big, large, you know, as I said, it wasn't just a little gar a little piece of a garden here, a little piece. It was just massive amounts. The other thing that was just wonderful as you're traveling around and we were, we went to Bath, um, which is um, in the outskirts of the Cotswolds, um, were these gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous stone walls, but they didn't just leave them stone. They had Campanula, which is a bell flower with a little purple flower um, that was growing and is in part of the wall, hanging down, softening down all the walls. You know, they had um, gorgeous, gorgeous um, saxifrage and, and um, all these plants that we might use as ground covers. They were actually growing out of the wall and covering the wall. And oh, it's, you just stand there and you just go, oh, wow. It's, it's really beautiful. You know, something that's very distinctive in England and um, very different how we do, um, as Michael was talking about, parks like Hyde Park is one of their largest parks in London and um, we have parks let's say in California I don't want to say back east because back east has some fabulous gardens as well there's Central Park and others but it's it's like when we do a garden here in California I mean a park it's just grass and trees right 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 it might be a pond but there aren't drifts of perennials there we don't have the same attention and desire for that kind of um, beauty, I do, but we get caught up in our workaday lives in our park districts and so on. It's not their focus. Their focus is, here's a park, you could jog, you could walk, there's some grass and here's some shade, you know, shade trees, period. You're so right, you're so right. And then you walk through, I mean, the thing that the, the very last day, you know, we came back into London after being in Bath and the Cotswold and the very last day we went back to, to London and it was before we flew out, we went back to Kensington Gardens, but there was a section called the Italian Garden, which 
oh my God, you know, it looked like something straight out of Italy with the fountains and the, the most incredible water lilies and fountains and planting. And of course, the wildlife um, there, there's lots of swans. That's the one thing that surprised me. And swans are protected by the queen. They, she owns pretty much all the swans, not that you know, she keeps track of them, but but they're protected. You're not allowed to touch a swan. And there were swans. Nor would you want water. to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there were the one thing that I saw where there were these little baby swans that were just the most adorable thing I'd ever seen. They're so sweet. You know, um, and that is something that I did see um, right in the outdoors at the botanical garden with those huge water lilies that are, um, I mean, the leaves can sometimes be four feet wide. And the la the first time I ever saw that um, was in the conservatory at Kew Gardens in England. I mean, I've seen photos, but I mean, I mean, they are so large, a baby could sit in it and not sink. They're, I know, I mean, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's just, it, it's it makes you appreciate what we do. And the fact is, is that, you know, and the one thing that, that um, I, you know, you know, it is in England, they love their gardens and um, you know, they, they just pride themselves in all of the, in the trees and the shrubs and the bushes and the, and the perennials. In fact, the thing that was really interesting is as I, um, we were staying in Bath and there were these little, um, sunken you know apartments where they had these they were underground they actually were below the ground but they had these little courtyards now some of the people did nothing with it it was just dirt and the windows looked out to like a blank wall but there were some people one woman in particular i kept going by she every window looked out she made the most incredible garden and she had a climbing hydrangea going up on the stucco wall oh my god it was yeah yeah yeah, they're quite fabulous. Well, let me ask you, did you drink the water at the Roman baths? Did you try it at the end? We tried the water at the Roman baths, and it was very kind of tinny and, and minerally. But it was, I mean, again, that was such an amazing thing to go um, into a into a place that was that had been developed in the 1400s and then was then in the, the 1700s and the 1800s, you know, and, and go and then, see. But, but built um, over 2000 years ago. Exactly, exactly. And just just amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah, I love that was one of the things the high points were going to the Roman baths. And then the town itself, Bath is just any of you that that are that do listen to us, if you get a chance to go, I mean London's wonderful and, and England's wonderful, but I will tell you, it was voted the the most the best place to live in England is Bath. It's what a wonderful place and what a great place to walk. It's beautiful. And um, usually the way you get there is by train. However, um, when we left Bath, uh, the, my friends that I was with, they had rented a car. And so we drove back. And I think I mentioned this before. And as we were driving, I looked out the window and I took a double take because there was Stonehenge. Right. Next oh, you're the kidding. Car. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really crazy. Well, um, so. England is wonderful. Um, Puerto Vallarta, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump from California. And um, I'll tell you, once you cross the border, for me, it's like something happened to time. It just doesn't go in that linear, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. It doesn't, nor do the days. Once you get there, it's it's, it's almost like the, the sound of the ocean and the waves lapping right up by your feet. It just erases time. It erases worry, anxiety, thoughts, everything. There's so it was a very different experience than um, 
being in England, which is absolutely fabulous as well. However, for me, just for a week, it felt like, I don't know, it just felt timeless. And, and it was a complete unplug. And just the power of being by the ocean and the rhythm of the water. And you, you know, all of a sudden you shrink down to a place where you realize that this is a vast planet and universe. Right. And it's what so the water, did you go in the water? I did. Yeah. And, um, last year there was a lot more pelicans, but the pelicans were there and the birds and the water is not ice cold. I mean, it's <laughs> perfect. We're closer to the equator. So, yeah. So it's it's really beautiful, and um, not to mention the uh, margaritas and the guacamole. I'm here to tell you, you could live on that stuff. But um, I think both Michael and I, if we have anything to really say, it's to say travel. Get out, travel. And if you can, wherever you go, try to catch a garden, a public garden, a botanical garden, because... Um, you'll see and learn so much and everything you see and learn, you could bring back home. Absolutely. And, and it does, it opens your eyes to a whole different way of living life and everything, even a small space. It doesn't have to be. That's why I was saying, as I was walking up the streets of Bath, there are these little sunken gardens off these, they're, they're like little condos um, there or apartments and everything. They don't have to be huge. I think the thing that's so neat about it. And, and also in Mexico is because they have these big, beautiful public gardens and places to walk and everything, even if you don't own your own huge space, you can create an environment for yourself, but then you you can go outside. And, and I think that's the one thing that, that I had loved so much when I was in Mexico was the plazas and the, and the courtyards and the, the public spaces. People go out there, they sit there, they read, they listen to music. They don't they don't hold hold themselves away from other people. They no. just sit there. It was the same thing in England. People were out and they were jogging and they were sitting in the lawn and they were reading and they were picnicking. And, you know, people weren't just locked away, you know, in their own homes watching TV. They were out and, and spending yeah. time with families and friends. Yeah, it's very different. Paris is like that as well. These these European countries and um, also um, also Central American company countries and, and many others, uh, the outdoor beauty, when you come home from work, it's so much more relaxing um, to be out in a park or in Paris, you know, to sit sit by the the Seine and have a, a bottle of wine and a baguette and cheese. I mean, it's just I would so much rather do that than watch television when I get home. So I agree. No, I agree with you. And it is, it's a whole different. And so I understand when you said it's it, when you go on vacation, especially, you know, Mexico, Puerto Vallarta, it is, it's almost like a Zen thing. You, you decompress and you relax. It's, it's just a wonderful feeling. I just yep. love it. Yeah. There was a day where I had, um, I think it was the second day I was there. We flew in kind of late and you know how you're, you fly in and you really don't know where you're at. And um, so the next day I, I had a, a lounge chair under Palapa uh, right on the beach. I have a picture of my feet and <laughs> the waves beyond. And I spent the entire day between that and then going up to a pool. And this wasn't a huge, this wasn't a big circusy, massive um, resort. It wasn't, it was an older place. Each apartment had a balcony. Each balcony had bougainvillea that flew down, you know, that, that draped down. And, but I spent the entire day laying and reading and sleeping and being by the ocean. And I thought, 
when was the last time I've done this? Because I juggle a million things at once, as you do too, Michael, because we have right. we have designs on our desk, we have jobs going in, we have clients that need um, help, we need, you know, we need to be intermediaries between the clients and the contractors, and then there's the nurseries and the plants. So I thought, this is this is like having one day like this just rejuvenated my whole being. It's, it was just so important. I agree. And I think it really showcases the importance of what we do in terms of creating these outdoor environments, spaces that they're not just pretty, pretty places that you look at. You actually kind of envelop, they envelop you and, and you relax in it and it, it kind of refreshes your soul. I think that that's what's so important about it. And I think that's what people, you know, I'm not a city person. I mean, I like the city. I was I born and raised in the city. But when you when you go back to nature and you spend time out in nature, even if you are in the city, that's what's what's so funny. You go to London, and London surrounded Hyde Park, Kensington Park, all these different parks, and they're not little puny spaces. They're huge, they're and people. Huge. Yeah, and they spend time in the parks, and I think that that makes up for all of the the compaction of being close to other people and spending a lot of time, whether it be a subway or walking or anything, you can decompress in a park. So you can decompress in your yard as well if it's designed well, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's what we do. So we don't, you know, we live differently. We live much more spread out, at least where we are in uh, Northern California. Um, You know, we don't, we have little parks that we walk to, but you know the, what Michael's talking about, and these trees that he's talking about are also several hundred years old too. They're massive, and they are beings in their own right. However, oh, yeah. it's it's it's. Yeah. I have to say, it's totally incredible when um, one of the places we also went because we're horse people, and so we went to the badminton um, horse trials, and you go to this this estate where they're, they're, uh, the horses are competing, and it's 15 acres, some of the most, and you're right, two, three, 400-year-old trees, some of the trees that you just look at them and you just stand there, and it really, I mean, they're two, 300 feet tall. They're, they're, they're the most incredible things I've ever seen with the girths, and they're almost like works of art, one single tree. It's, just, it's pretty amazing. They are works of art. I, I remember when we were touring um, Hever Castle, which is where the, the home of Anne Boleyn, to where um, Henry VIII uh, rode his horse into the court, you know, looking for her in, in a little yeah. court. And I remember, um, and later the Astors bought that and really developed the gardens, you know, because we're talking about from the 1600s, you know, later on to the uh, turn of the century, 1800s. And um, I remember looking at these trees, these massive, beautiful giants, thinking, these trees have seen so much history, you know? They've seen kings and courtiers riding in on horses. They've seen so much. And so it's really, it's really truly um, an experience to be in the presence of these, these fabulous old trees. And they are revered by people. They're not just, oh, there's an old oak, we have oaks. No, these trees are, you know, their presences and they are treated like that as well. I agree, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it was... It, it's kind of mind boggling. It just, it was. And that was the thing that surprised me the most is walking through these, the, the, these rows of these amazing, amazing, amazing trees. And, and in some of the areas, you didn't even have to have anything under, under them. It was just kind of a, a natural mulch. 
and then you have the big trees and you just stare up at them and and you're odd i mean that's that's the only way to describe it you're odd beautiful well we were also going to give you some tips on um what some people call a hell strips i don't know why they are named that but there's a strip of there's a strip of planting that's usually grass in between your sidewalk and the curb and the street you know what i'm talking about oh i know the area yes Yes. And so generally, if you're in a production home um, area, generally everybody has that strip of grass. They have one or two shade trees. And um, and then, you know, on the other side of the sidewalk is your landscape. And the, the thing is, especially as we've come deeper and deeper into drought, and I don't see an end to that, the idea of having a, a six foot by 20 foot slice of grass where if it does rain in the winter, you get out of the car if you're visiting someone and, and you step in wet grass. I mean, and now in the summer to spend um, hundreds and thousands of gallons of water on this little strip that nobody plays on, right? No one plays right. on it. Right. It just, and they, then the tree roots get bit, get in, um, start yeah. to spread out and, and it's all hard to walk on. Right. And, and the reason that tree roots are spreading out is because the sprinklers are timed for grass, which means they get two short intervals. So, of course, the tree roots have to stay shallow to get that water. So um, let's we're going to in the last 10 minutes, what we have here, we're gonna, Michael and I are going to talk about some alternatives for this. And, and I would say, first and foremost, even before we talk about plants, if you get rid of the grass, the first thing you want to think about is having some pathways across that to the side. I love that. And you can do um, th- 30 inch by 30 inch precast concrete stepping pads, or you ca- they come in um, rectangles, they come in squares, or you could even do decomposed granite, a little, little walkway. But you're right. You park your car there, you get out of your car, or especially if you're a passenger or depending on which side you are and you need to walk to the sidewalk well, walking on dead lawn or walking on soggy lawn doesn't make sense. So if you provide a pathway that you can get out of your car and you can actually step on something before you get to the sidewalk makes a lot of sense. It looks so much better. And let's say you do, you know, have tree roots through there. Well, um, as Michael said, decomposed granite works really well. It compacts and you can um, let's say there's not a lot of water available there. You could have decomposed granite and some nice boulders. Boulders are, they're beautiful accents as well. And maybe have a dwarf agave or something like that. You don't need to fill the whole space, but it could be really lovely and sustainable and also useful. Well, and it's funny because the one thing, again, coming from spending a lot of uh, some time in England, they use gravel. They use um, pea gravel a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really wonderful medium. And that's something else that you could use would be pea gravel. I love the sound of the crunch of pea gravel, but it's, yeah. it's amazing how much you see it all through Europe. Yeah, pea gravel and crushed rock. Um, the thing with pea gravel, you have to be a little bit careful because it rolls a little bit when you walk on it. Right. Um, so crushed rock tends to, um, you know, those sharp pieces kind of put themselves together almost puzzle-like. You know, they'll jam in together and become compact. But both, um, I'd say that is probably the least expensive way to go first would be um, some type of gravel. And then decomposed granite would be the next. Remember, decomposed granite, you it has to be um, pretty much rolled or vibrated in after it's, you know, put in. It's, it's like a sand and it has to... It has to come together. So there's a little more labor. And right. then there's um, uh, another less, a little bit less expensive than the concrete pavers are just some flagstone, pieces of flat flagstone. If you have them hanging around or if you buy, 
you know, five, six pieces that makes a path across. And then there's those um, pavers. And then I have some clients that actually had little brick walkways through there. But um, that, that should be your first consideration. And the next consideration would be the plants. Right. Okay. And it's nice if, if um, there's not a lot of room, you could even just do a simple ground cover. Creeping thyme, mm-hmm. um, lemon, uh, lemon thyme. You could, if it gets plenty of sun and you don't have a lot of shade there, you could even do a verbena or a, a uh, which would be really pretty. Or um, we've talked about it before, carapia, which would be really nice because you can kind of lay it out there and then cut the stepping pads or the flagstones out where the carapia is. And, and that would be that gives you the white flower and the dark and the nice green. And, and to just refresh your memories, carapia is a type of broadleaf sod. It um, takes 60 percent less water and it does not need to be mown. You, you could mow it or not. So that's what that's what Michael's talking about. Um, and what the, what you don't want to do is put anything tall in that area because it's going right, to, because then you're going to have people getting out of their car, opening a car door and hitting into something tall or trying to walk, try to maneuver over something tall. So low things, that's where the creeping time, the lemon time, um, mm-hmm. woolly time, any of the times there's, there's like five, six, seven different types. There's a ground cover called Pradia angulata that would be really, really pretty. There's so many different ground covers that are low that maybe get three, two to six inches at the most. Most of them are two to three inches. That would be great in between the stepping stones. Right, there's um, tucrium and there's also um, little blue fescue grasses. You know, you could do that. I love those, yeah. You do the whole area in fescue grasses. And if it's a shady area, because you have a shade tree, there's um, small ferns, there's coral bells, there's a hookera, and um, all types of varieties. So instead of looking at these um, these strips as just done, look at them as an opportunity to create something really wonderful and make it useful, a pathway from your, you know, the car to the sidewalk. You could be so creative without spending very much money. I think that that's a great idea. And it also sets the pace. So if you do it, then maybe your neighbor or the people people on the street will start doing it. And so before you know it, you've started to beautify the whole street, the whole environment. Yeah. You know, there was a children's book I used to read to my daughter. We loved it. It's called uh, The the orange splot. And, and I'm, I'm just going to liken this to changing your most strip because um, in this very fancy neighborhood, I mean, even if it's a children's book, obviously, so there's an art, it's artist raw. But uh, one day a pelican was flying by and it was uh, in its beak, it was holding a can of orange paint. Figure, you know, when that's going to happen. But anyway, it dropped it on a roof. And, you know, the guy that had the house is he looked up and, you know, this perfect neighborhood with perfect houses all of a sudden had a, he had a big orange splot. But in the neighbor said, oh, yes, I'm really sorry that happened. And, and then he left it for a while. And pretty soon the neighbor said, hey, you know, this is a really nice neighborhood. Why are you keeping that orange spot? But the guy all of a sudden thought, you know what? I like that color. So what he did is he started painting his house in all these colors. And the neighbors just thought that was so crazy. But then some other, other neighbors said, you know, I've always wanted my house to look like a ship. So he painted his house like a ship and and someone else wanted to have their landscape look like an island. So he, he had a you know, he painted his house like an island and there was a hammock between these two palms. and He had a little pet crocodile. Basically, what I'm saying is or what Michael and I were saying is if you take that leap and do something fun, something wonderful, something beautiful, something sustainable, it catches on because people just need to see, hey, you know, that 
that's pretty nice. I'm going to do it, but I want to do something a little bit different. You know, absolutely. People need inspiration, and and they need to see someone else be a trendsetter, and then they follow. But the big thing is, a lot of people can't visualize. You can say to someone, "Why don't you do this, this, and this?" and they can't visualize it. But once they see it, and they go, oh, "You know, that's really nice. I'd love to do something like that." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you could put art out there. I, I saw one. Um, one woman who put those galvanized, you know, planters like you like to talk about that right. you have in place. And what she had done is she had painted it, spray painted this lemon, well, kind of a creamy yellow color. And then because she had taken a mosaic class, she did a border strip around the top of it in mosaic and then planted it. That, you know, she did a couple of those in her mo strip and then decomposed granite. You see, there's all kinds of things you could do. So. Um, that's what we're here for. We want to urge you to be creative and give you ideas so um, that you can take that and make your own place, your own tropical island, your own drought-tolerant island, whatever whatever suits you, your fancy. So Sounds great to me. That's what we're here for. We are, I'm well, I am Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. And we are Dig Deep. Thank you for joining us.